Welcome to this podcast from Riverside Church Whitstable. We hope you find it helpful and encouraging. If you would like to find out more information about us, why not check out our website at riversideuk.org, our Facebook page, or follow us on Twitter at WhitRiverside. Right, we've got a lot of stuff going on as a church, you know. We, we Martin passed away um, a week last Thursday, and we've got Rob, who's really poorly, and Chris is having his lung operation on Tuesday. There's a lot going on, but we also, as we mourn those things and pray for them, we need to celebrate what God's doing too. So there's always the ups and downs in church life, well, in, in life in general. So I've asked Lloyd today just to give you an update of what God's doing for him. He was reticent. Come on, Lloyd, give him a big hand. I've literally only just asked him in the break, so he hasn't prepared anything, but Lloyd doesn't really need to prepare. Um, So, so, yeah, as you know, Lloyd has been um, journeying with cancer for the last few years, but God is really sustaining him. And like I said, although we've had some hard news in the last couple of weeks, God's also doing some amazing things with Lloyd. So if you're happy to just share where you're at so we can be praying. Yeah, really. Good morning, everyone. What I want to bring you is a message of hope. And also a message of how good, compassionate and loving our Saviour, the Lord, is. And how he can deal in all the adversity with us. And this week, you know, hearing the news about Martin and there's other people suffering here. It seems like the human condition sometimes is suffering. But also to praise God in everything. And I stand here today praising God and thanking God for my very existence. Uh, where, where am I up, uh, at at the moment? Well, you know, I look pretty good, but I, I have good days, bad days, and uh, I put a smile on my face. It, the Lord has given me that gift, and it is a gift to be up and to be happy amongst all that goes on. But for me, I went... In April to see my specialist, the oncologist, and there was also an oncologist from the Marsden there, and he said, we're really confused. We're really confused. I'm looking at you. I'm looking at your figures, what's in front of me. And he said, you're a dead man walking. He said, I've not seen it in 40-odd years. Placebo can't do this. Uh... Being upbeat can't do this. I have no answers, he said. He said, you'll be getting a phone call from the hospice. Don't be alarmed, because you're at that level. And I went, ah. And he said, Christmas. And I went, which Christmas? (laughs) And, you know, it's... I'm really sensitive to the fact that I don't understand why the Lord is pouring his love on me and keeping me alive. And we're quality of life as well and I was that's why I don't talk about the problems and then I see good friends and members of the congregation here that I know who I think of as friends and I see them suffer and it's not about death it's about suffering mentally uh, physically challenges it could be their kids are doing GCSEs and you know we think when we're a kid that or, or a teenager that the GCSEs, it's the end of the world, or the A-levels. And it's a terrible strain in this world now. Everyone's tested and does everything. But what I want to say is a message of hope, that while the Lord can deal with the big things, he can also deal with the little things. And 
what just before Keeley spoke to me and said, just come up here, something hit me, and it was, I think it's Joshua 24, it may be 25, I only, it came to me just now, and it's in verse 15. As for me and my house, I will worship the Lord. And that is the answer. That is the answer. I can't understand the whys and the wherefores uh, humanly, but our God is great. And he, he is so good to us, even in adversity. Thank you. Do keep praying for Lloyd and Therese and all the people in our church who are struggling with so many things. And as Lloyd says, we just have to keep praising God and having hope and thanking God for every day that we have. But thank you, Lloyd, for sharing. Amazing. Simon. Just a lovely sense of the Lord here today. So let's... Um... Let's open our hearts and our spirits to all that he wants to do in us. We're continuing with everyday spirituality. We've been going at this for a while now, looking at these different habits that we can try and incorporate into our lives to help us be more aware of God's presence in the everyday. Uh, We've used various key words um, during this season. So we've looked at this season of simplicity. And we've looked at this, uh, the word here, drawing ourselves to be present in the now, recognising that God is present with us. We looked at O, that, that, that way of trying to bring worship habitually into every area of life. We looked at thanksgiving, giving thanks in the big things and the small. And we said there we're in the, in the season of simplicity when things seem fairly straightforward. And often, you know, when we start out in life or in different seasons of life, things can seem quite straightforward and quite simple. But quickly things degenerate into complexity. <laughs> and uh, we go into seasons of our life where things get more nuanced, more complex. And we looked at this season where we recognise in ourselves that we're not maybe as, um, as reliable as we thought we were. Maybe we, uh, we're not as confident as we thought we were. Maybe we're dealing with fears and insecurities. We looked at the habit of sorry, bringing our confession to God habitually. We looked at the uh, habit of help, calling out to God for help in everything that we face, recognising we can't do life on our own. And we looked at um, this idea of please, where we're calling out empathetically for others and for those around us who are also struggling and suffering. And then we've ventured into the forest of perplexity, which is a, can be a dark place. And, and we looked at these different words. I started off looking at this question of when, you know, when, God, are you going to move? When is this going to change? When is the situation going to be transformed? And uh, then we looked at no, bringing our no to God, basically... Um, carrying that cry of sort of injustice before the Lord. Um, and then today we're going to look at, well, that's the, the campfire we talked about, the, uh, the sense that as we venture out into the forest, as we venture out into the perplexity, we can kind of have this home fire. And for me, I said it's these three simple words that God is love, take from uh, 1 John 4, that God is love. And as we venture out into the darkness and the uncertainty of life, we can always return to the warmth and the light of that fire that burns, that God is, God is love. And that's a place we can return to and be warmed by. And it's a place we know we can always find. The Bible's very clear saying nothing can separate us from the love of God. So if you missed that talk, it might be worth going back and just really getting a sense of what we were saying um, in that particular message. 
Today, well, we are looking at this question of why, which is what uh, Lois just alluded to, this question of why, which is one of the biggest questions we face in times of perplexity with our faith. Brian McLaren describes the habit of bringing this question before God. He describes it as the, the practice of lament, surviving through abandonment. And times in our faith, we can find ourselves saying, God, you know, we've moved through the no, we've, moved through, we've sort of exhausted our no before God, and we're now just kind of before God saying, why? Why me? Why that person? Why this situation? We can think about this season of perplexity as a, as a tunnel, a tunnel that we enter and a tunnel that we can exit. And with this question of why, we find ourselves really in the darkest part of the middle of the tunnel. Where I grew up in the, um, in the Midlands of the Black Country, there were lots of canal networks, and there was a, a particularly long tunnel not far, far from where we lived that went through a very big hillside. And it's a really foreboding-looking tunnel because you looked into it and you could not see light. You could not see light at the end of the tunnel. The tunnel was so long, I think nearly a mile long, under a big, a big hill in the Black Country. And, uh, and I thought, what would it be like to go through there on a canal boat? There was a footpath. You could walk through it, but I don't think anyone ever wanted to because it was, looked so foreboding and so dark. And with this question of why, we sort of find ourselves in the middle of the darkest point of the tunnel of perplexity. When we enter a season of perplexity, we might think we're going to get through it quickly. We might think it's just an inconvenience. (coughs) Normal service will be resumed as soon as possible. We'll pass through it quickly and we'll get out the other side and it'll just be a momentary inconvenience in our lives. But sometimes these seasons can really last for a long time and can be with us. They can be enduring seasons. And so we find ourselves in these really dark spaces and dark places. Sometimes referred to as the dark night of the soul uh, in sort of Christian liturgy. We find ourselves in these places where things have become really bleak. We can't see God. We can't see light. And we're faced with the question of why. Why? And the more we venture into the tunnel, the more unsettled we become as we lose our bearings, we lose our points of reference. When we go in, maybe that question of when, it's like, well, how long is this tunnel? And then with that question of no, we looked at, well, this tunnel shouldn't even exist. It shouldn't even be here. But now with the why, it's like, God, why, why am I here? Why am I here in the darkness? The theologian Walter Brueggemann, he describes three different types of prayers that we can find in the Psalms in our Bibles. The first type he calls prayers of orientation. And you could say that these are the prayers that we pray when the world makes sense, when the world is straightforward, when things are behaving as we think they should. We can take Psalm 1, for instance, as a prayer of orientation. It says this, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take, or sits in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. 
Not so the wicked, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the law watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. So Psalm 1 is telling us that the good guys are blessed and the bad guys get what they deserve. It's a prayer prayer of simple orientation. The good prosper, the wicked wither. Prayers are answered, disasters are averted, and all is right in the world. So we read Psalms like Psalm 1 and we we take great comfort from it and we read it and we, we pray it. But then life happens. Life happens to us and we experience different types of realities. The wicked seem to prosper, seem to go unchecked and we see bad stuff happening to good people. And we bring the question, why? Why, God? Why, when you say this is the way things should be, why is this happening? And as we find ourselves in the darkness of perplexity, it can seem that life is more like a cosmic lottery. Some people get a good ticket, live a blessed life, and some people draw a bad ticket and live a life of suffering. Some people experience terrible tragedy, and some people experience blessing upon blessing upon blessing. And in perplexity, our simple prayers of orientation, they start to sort of unravel. We can still pray them, we can still say them, but they start to unravel in the face of life that we're experiencing. And Walter says at that point, our cries become what he calls prayers of disorientation. Disorientation, when things have shifted and the bearings aren't quite what they used to be. The compass is spinning and we can't quite see the way forward. And in the face of suffering in our own lives or suffering in the lives of others, we often face this season of disorientation. So if Psalm 1 conveys orientation, then Lamentations 3 conveys disorientation. Let's read from that this morning. I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. He has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. He has made my skin and my flesh grow old. He has broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. He has made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. These words are in your Bible. I am the man who has seen affliction. The poet in Lamentations begins because he feels he's been stricken by God's angry rod. God makes him walk in darkness rather than light. He feels that God's hand is against him again and again and again all day long. And the poet in Lamentations describes in painstaking detail just how he feels he has basically incurred God's displeasure. He's surrounded by bitterness and hardship. He's walled in. He's trapped. He's in a maze of perplexity. And God seems to be focusing his wrath upon him. He's lost in a maze 
in the darkness. He goes on. Like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in hiding, he dragged me from the path and mangled me. This is God he's talking about. And left me without help. He drew his bow and made me a target for his arrows. And so for the poet in Lamentations, God has become like this vicious predator who's stalked him, waited for him, waited till he was vulnerable, dragged him, mauled him, mangled him. He describes God like a sniper who's used his heart for target practice, firing arrow again and again into him. These words are in your Bible. These words are in your Bible describing God. His list of grievances goes on. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has trampled me in the dust. I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord. This man is in utter perplexity and darkness and desperation. And he's chosen to express those feelings in the form of a written lament, which we find in the pages of our Bible. And these words are real words from a real person written at a real time about real feelings and circumstances. There's an awful, awful lot of humanity in the pages of your Bible. We talk about it as God's book, but there's an awful, awful lot of humanity in the pages of your Bible. Over recent years, the Bible has begun to be described as the inerrant word of God. This is quite a recent thing, probably in the last century or so. The inerrant word of God. The word inerrant simply means without error. So what that means, if you look it up and applying it to the Bible, it means that everything you find in your Bible should be factual, without error. Everything you find in your Bible is factual. So we find out this morning the fact that God is indeed a vicious predator. We find out this morning that God is in fact a vicious sniper. We find out this morning the fact that God will set his anger and wrath against you. This is the conclusion we have to come to if we treat the book of the Bible as inerrant, a book purely of fact. So is the writer of Lamentations expressing the truth about God here? No. Are these factual, inerrant writings? No. The poet is not telling the truth about God, but he is telling the truth about how he feels about God and how he feels about his life and his situation. Do you see the problem as describing the Bible as inerrant? It limits and squashes out the humanity and the power of the humanity that's expressed in the pages of our Bibles. What we learn from writings like we find in Lamentations, we learn how someone feels in the midst 
of perplexity. We learn how they feel about God in the midst of the darkness. And what we can learn from writings like this is that it is okay to express how we feel to God. It's okay that we can express to God just how we feel in the midst of the darkness of perplexity. If this wasn't the case, and you believe God had a hand in putting those writings together that you collect and call the Bible, why would this have made the cut? Why would this be present in the scriptures? If we believe that God had a hand in bringing this eclectic collection of writings from different ages and different writers and different histories and different contexts, why would this be writing be found in your Bible? See, I believe the Spirit breathes through people and is present in people's lives. And some of those writings and that breathing has been collected and found its place in your Bible. But your Bible was never supposed to be a textbook. Your Bible was never supposed to be classed as inerrant. It was supposed to be classed as inspired. It's inspired by the Word of God. There are many things in the Bible that are not facts, that are not factual. The poet is writing about how it feels to be in the darkest place, feeling like God has abandoned him. And he's using metaphors and symbolism to describe what it feels like to be in that place of affliction. But these aren't truths about who God is. These aren't truths about what God does. But it is the truth of this person's feelings and understanding at that particular time. And it's really important to understand that as we wrestle with perplexity. Because what this shows us and and tells us is that God is okay with us expressing our deepest anguish before him. He's okay with us expressing what it feels like to be in these situations. The poet describes the pain and the suffering of feeling like being cut off from God in the darkness. If you're in a time of perplexity this morning, I want you to know it's okay to express your feelings before God. It's okay to express what it feels like before God. That's why we find these writings in our Bibles, the beautiful humanity, the, the partnership, the interaction between God and people. The Bible's full of emotion and poetic language and mystery and hope and faith and love. And the writings like these, they, they tell us that God is so interested in our humanity, in who we are, the feelings and the emotions that he placed within us. He wants us to be able to express ourselves fully to him and walk with him in all the complexity and perplexity that we find in life. So I want to encourage you this morning, as you approach your Bible, don't approach it as a textbook. Approach it as a diary, a love diary between people and God. And look for the humanity in it. Look for the Look for the feeling and the emotion. So we're in the darkness. We're in the midst of the pain of life. And God wants to tell us that he is with us in those times. In the question of why, in the darkness, we sort of stumble forward. And maybe, just maybe, 
we see just a glimmering point of light off in the distance. Maybe there is hope. Maybe God hasn't disappeared. Maybe our faith hasn't failed us. As we stumble forward, we experience another kind of prayer, what Walter Brueggemann describes, prayers of reorientation. Prayers of reorientation. And the writer of this, this powerful lamentation moves forward into this new space. He says this, Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. Having expressed the full weight of how he feels, the poet is moving into a, a different season now, reorientating himself, remembering the character of God. He's returned to that campfire of God's great love, the, the key part of God's character because of God's great love. He's, he's reorientating himself around the light and the warmth of that fact. That's the one that hasn't been sort of stolen away from him in the midst of the darkness. His compassions never fail. And so the writer has been honest about the pain and now he's expressing a new honesty about hope. He's seeing the light, maybe a tiny pinpoint of light in the darkness. He says this, I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. He's reorientating himself in the darkness of perplexity around the character of God, the things that he is bringing back to mind, the things he's convinced are true. And even that life is handing him a different reality, he's convinced that the character of God is the one thing that won't change. The Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. Something new is being birthed in the poet as he experiences these things in life. There's a sense that even in the darkest, darkest place, God is present with him. Psalm 23 is one of the most famous psalms we find in the Bible, a very well-known psalm. And uh, it's often read out at various times, and and most people are familiar with it. Um, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He'll lead me into these green pastures, he'll lead me by still waters. But also, Psalm 23 describes a valley, a dark, dark valley. It says this, Even though I walked through the darkest valley, or the valley of the shadow of death, depending on what translation you read, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Psalm 23 tells us in life there'll be green pastures, there'll be still waters, there'll be cups that are overflowing, there'll be banqueting tables, laden for us to sit down at. But it also tells us that there will be dark valleys. And in those dark, dark valleys, the psalmist says, you are with me. You are with me. God is with us in the darkness, even though sometimes we can't see it, we can't feel it, we can't perceive it. Our circumstances are saying one thing, but God is with us in the midst of the perplexity, in the midst of the why, in the midst of the when, in the midst of the no. God is present with us. And we cry out because we want an explanation. 
We want an explanation for our suffering. We want an explanation for the, the suffering of others. Why that person? Why not that person? Why does that person survive? Why does that person die? We want an explanation for all the suffering and the pain. And one of the biggest questions we ask ourselves, and often we fall into the trap of, and we say, is pain and suffering part of God's plan for us? Is pain and suffering just God's plan for us? Jesus asked this question in the Garden of Gethsemane. Knowing the pain and suffering that he's about to endure through arrest and flogging in the cross, he says, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. If it is possible. And what's really powerful about the words of Jesus there is that if, if Jesus was kind of running on some rails of God's plan, there would be no point in bringing an if to his father, would there? He'd be just praying, God, just let, help me get through this. Help me get this over with. Help me get this plan executed and done. But he brings this if to God. And this is a really interesting thing to reflect on. Because Jesus is showing the full humanity of himself in that moment. He's bringing his humanity before his heavenly father. And he's saying, is there any other way? If it's possible, can I escape this suffering that's about to come upon me? If suffering was just part of the plan, would Jesus have prayed this way? It's a really important thing to think about. If Jesus was just executing a checklist given to him by his father, you know, last supper, check. Garden of Gethsemane, check. Get arrested, check. Falsely accused, check. Be flogged, check. Crucified, check. If Jesus was just going through a checklist issued to him by his father, just go and execute the plan, Jesus. But in this moment, we find this beautiful if If it's possible, God, can I escape this suffering? Is there another way? This is about the humanity present in Jesus. And the key is, Jesus is not trusting a plan. He is trusting his father. He is trusting his father in the face of suffering. And he adds, doesn't he? Yet not as I will, but as you will. I'm not trusting a plan, God. I'm trusting you in the midst or in the face of suffering. And we get confused if we think that suffering is part of God's plan for us. I don't think that's true. I think God is with us in the suffering. I don't think God ordains suffering for anybody. I don't think... I'm messing with the gospel here, I don't know. But... The fact that Jesus presents this if is a really interesting thing, isn't it? Is there any other way, God? But if there isn't, I'm going to trust you in it. And I think as Jesus prayed that prayer, he believed that even though he was going to go through this incredible suffering and pain, he believed that his father, he trusted that his father could bring good from it. Because sometimes we think Jesus is just like some sort of gospel robot, don't we? just running on rails through all the things that he had to do. Yeah, got that, done that, done that. When I do that, that's going to be that. But he was a a human with God fully present in him. And so he's about to enter suffering. 
And he trusts his father to redeem and bring out something from this pain, this suffering. His father can somehow turn this all to good. Later on the cross, he's fully in the valley of darkness. He's in the center of the tunnel of perplexity. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cries out to his father. And in the valley of the shadow of death, Jesus brings his why to God. Why God? Why God? But what's beautiful about this phrase is with the why, there is still the my. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus holds the why and the my together in the midst of his suffering. He holds the question and the trust together in the midst of suffering. The church hasn't always handled why very well, I don't think. We want a a quick reason for it. We want a, a short tunnel. We want a quick answer. We want to bridge over it. We want to forget about it. We want to ignore it. We want to somehow not have to ask that question, why? And sometimes why has been weaponized in the church against people struggling with the world and with their faith. So the one struggling, you know, why don't you just have more faith? Why don't you just have more faith? To the one challenging orthodoxy, why don't you just conform? Why don't you just believe? Why don't you just know that we know what's right? To the one struggling with mental health, why don't you just pull yourself together? Just pull yourself together. To the one trying to live authentically in their identity, why don't you just fit in? We've used and weaponized why to suppress the struggles of perplexity that we experience in life. We've tried to use why to bring people into a place of conformity. When our natural response should be like the poet's. God, this is really difficult. It feels like this. This is my truth at the moment of my situation. Why is the natural God-given response to life's complexities and perplexities? It's not something we should try and suppress. It's not something we should try and reason away with faith. Why is the natural human reaction to the things that we face in this life? It's the natural reaction that we express while we wait for the love of God to be fully realized upon the earth. The scripture says the earth groans in the pains of childbirth, waiting for the fullness of God. And we groan with it. We are part of it. And God groans as well. We groan under the weight of the why and the when as we wait for the fullness of God to be ushered in. God is fully with us in the why. He's fully with us in the tunnel. He's fully with us in the darkness. And you and I should never suppress how we feel before God and before other people because God is fully able to handle our humanity. He made us this way. And what we learn from the scriptures like Lamentations and the Psalms, we learn that God isn't just spectating our pain. God is present with us in our pain. 
He's not standing back observing some strange plan that's been executed in your life. He's actually with you in the midst of your suffering. He's with you in the birthing process of what's happening in your life. And we do hope that God can somehow redeem and transform and and bring good out of our suffering, but we can't always see that and we can't always express that. And that's okay. But I would encourage you, your present moment is never, ever meaningless to God. Whatever you are experiencing, your present moment is never meaningless. And as you ask the question, what possible good can come out of this? Sometimes we have to just lay that before God. We just lay that before God. You're not called to trust God's plan for your life. You're called to trust God with your life. Because God is with you in every part of your life. In the simplicity and the complexity and the perplexity. And we choose when we follow Jesus to trust that he's present with us. Just as Jesus trusted his father to be present with him in every aspect of his life as he walked upon the earth. He wasn't just executing a plan. He didn't helicopter in with a checklist. He was learning to trust his father every step of the way. And you and I can take great comfort from the fact that in the darkest valleys, God is with us. We may not have any kind of explanation or any sense of what is happening or why it's happening, but we know God can bring us comfort with his presence in the midst of it. Isaiah 61.3 says that God can bring Beauty from ashes, joy from mourning, and praise from despair. And that is our hope as we journey through these tunnels, these dark tunnels of life. Why don't you stand with me if you're able? Thank you for listening. If you would like to contact us about this talk, to hear more, or to find out about Riverside Church Whitstable, then visit our website at riversideuk.org. Also, you can contact us through our Facebook page or tweet us at Whit Riverside.